This is church. This is fellowship. Come on. Well, I'm happy to see you guys. Um, I want to keep you guys updated on these Sunday nights because I know for a few of you, um, you've made this your church service. Then a few of you, you you have this addition to your normal church service on Sunday mornings. But um, I wanted to just keep you guys updated on what is happening. Um, As you know, uh, most of you know, Aaron Marks and Jeremy Haynes have been preaching alongside me. Uh, Us three have been preaching periodically through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We've been swapping weeks. Um, Due to a bunch of changes in our staff and and just uh, where the Lord's calling us in different ways, uh, you're kind of stuck with me, if that's okay. Yeah? Okay. And like half the people in here are my family, so they've been stuck with me all along. Um, let's just get right into the word. Uh, raise your hand if you don't have a Bible, and Jason will come and get them to you. And so will Wyatt. Look at my little brother Wyatt back there. Oh, he's so cute. Everyone look at him and say, aww, aww, okay. <laughs> Not to Jason. <He's... laughs> Everyone give Jason a round of applause. He just had his first baby. I mean, he didn't have it wife did. He's dad though. I'm going to stop talking. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 once you get your Bibles. Luke chapter 4 and we're going to start off in verse 16. I will confess to you and I know I do this a lot but I will confess to you I had a very very difficult time making this sermon. So, if you guys glean anything from it tonight, it's the Lord, not me. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16. So he, being Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed a book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach, to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of the sight of the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today the scriptures fulfilled at your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at his gracious words and proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. And when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land, but none of them was Elijah sent except for Zarephath in the region of Sidon. 
to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. This has huge significance and we'll go through that later. Verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led to the brow of the hill on which their city was built. So they might throw him over a cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. We see now Jesus in his very own hometown, Nazareth. Being threatened with death. Being chased out of his town. And people wanting to toss him into the rocks. For those of you that say that Jesus was friends with everyone. He wasn't even friends with many people in his own hometown. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, God, you, you know my weakness, Lord. You know, Lord, that I am completely and totally, uh, Lord, w- without capability, Lord, without you. Hey, Father, I, I am unable to preach this message, Lord. I'm unable to handle your word properly without your spirit, Lord. So, Father, I just pray that you would do work tonight. Father, that your words would be spoken, Lord, and anything that's said of me tonight, Lord, I pray would be forgotten, Lord, but anything that you have to say to these people, Lord, I pray they would be remembered. Father, may I decrease so that you can increase, Lord, and may we as one body, Lord, as one church, Lord, as one uh, group of people, Lord, worship you with the study of your word. We love you tremendously, Jesus, uh, and it is in your name that we pray, amen. So just to give you guys context, like I like to do, uh, Nazareth, it's a little town, okay? Uh, Nazareth is not a big town. It's in the Galilean region, okay? It's in the Galilean region. What's interesting is because the Galilean region is filled with small towns, dozens and hundreds of just little, small villages. And Nazareth itself would have been a very small town, and it was Jesus's hometown, incredibly small. And what I think is pretty cool is that Jesus has left his hometown and he's, he's been doing ministry all throughout Galilee and Capernaum. He's been, he's been doing ministry and then he comes back to his hometown and he's a bit of a rock star when he comes back. He's so much of a rock star that, that, that everyone gathers in the synagogues. And it's by this time that Jesus is entering into his time of popularity. For a while he was pretty silent, but he's now entering into a time where people are actually starting to notice what Jesus does. People are actually starting to notice him. And so we we can uh, infer that Jesus has attracted quite a bit of a crowd in this small town of Nazareth. Now everyone's coming to hear and see if Jesus is the real deal. Kind of test him. And all along we can assume that that they're planning on testing him. Saying, hey, you know, we want to set up a healing tent. People will come by the thousands. We'll, you know, we'll charge them a couple of bucks and you can heal them. This is great. We're family. We're friends. Let's do business together. Jesus is a bit of a rock star in this small town. Everyone's flocking him. And it was Jewish custom in the synagogue. It was Jewish custom when they were gathering together as a congregation. They would start out with a prayer of benediction. They would start out with a prayer of praise to God. Okay, this was from several passages in Deuteronomy. And they, they, would, they would be praying together. And then they would all stand up for the reading of the word of the Lord. And then they'd sit down. And the teacher would stand up read another portion of scripture, and then he would sit down, then the rest of the congregation would stand up while the preacher taught. Now, usually, guys, it's custom in the Bible for the teacher to sit and for the congregation to stand. 
I'm not going to make you do that. But just know I'm suffering for you guys up here. So Jesus sits, all right? And, and it says that Jesus sits, and, and you know, that's custom, so everyone's, everyone's ready. Okay, everyone's ready because Jesus is an awesome teacher, Okay, we see this all throughout scripture. When Jesus just speaks, he, you know, he's charismatic. He, he has words that people want to hear and people hang on his every word. And, and the scripture that he pours out is, is Isaiah 61. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the side of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And it says right here that everyone in the synagogue, they were all on the edge of their seats as Jesus was speaking of this. They were all on the edge. They're waiting for Jesus to finish the portion of scripture that he's reading. Because we don't see it right here in Luke chapter 4, but in Isaiah 61, we see that it's an incomplete verse. When Jesus says to set liberty to those who are oppressed and to proclaim an acceptable year of the Lord... It's followed by a verse that says, and the day of vengeance of our God to conform all who mourn. And so you have to know that this is what the Jews were waiting for. Okay? They're waiting for vengeance. They've been waiting for the Messiah for thousands of years. They've been waiting for the Messiah since Adam and Eve. The first promise of the Messiah was in the fall in the Garden of Eden. That was when Jesus, I mean, that's when God first spoke of Jesus and his coming. So for thousands and thousands of years, these Jews have been, waited, have been waiting to be vindicated by their Messiah. Now, as circumstances changed, these Jews had changed what they wanted their Messiah to look like. Even though scripture clearly says right here, bind up the brokenhearted, set liberty to those who are oppressed. And it says, at the day of vengeance of our God, to conform to those who mourn, to comfort, not conform, comfort those who mourn. There, it, that's like a 2,000-year comma right there. Because that's the second coming of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus, when he's here right now, is to help those who are oppressed. And to free people. To vindicate people. And there's a point in the Jews' history, this, this is at a point in Jews' history where they are severely oppressed by Rome. You have to know this. Rome has taken everything away from the Jews except their religion. Okay? At this point in time, the Jews were oppressed and, and it completely, and they were barricading themselves in their religion. They had cocooned themselves in their religion so nobody can hurt them because you can't take away our rituals. You can't take away our synagogue. You can't take away our worship. You can't do that, Rome. And, and they left it there. They took away their freedom. They took away everything. All their rights were completely taken away by Rome. Roman soldiers were in. And the Jews were just sitting here just like, all we've got is our religion. This is all we got. So the Jews cleaved to their religion because it was all the Romans would allow them to keep. So they developed this mentality where they were the chosen ones of God. And anyone else who was not Jewish was not allowed to be with God. They had developed a legalistic barricade for themselves. Because they were so oppressed by others. They were so oppressed by Rome. Romans had taken everything. Their political freedom had been taken away. Everything. 
And so when they look for the Messiah, when when they look at Isaiah chapter 61, they really look at the vengeance part. They look at the vengeance part because they're like, yes, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to free us from Roman oppression and he's going to conquer and he's going to be our political savior. This is what they wanted their Messiah to be, even though clearly in scripture it doesn't say that. Says that he's going to free people from our sins and establish his kingdom with his people that have been freed. They wanted to conform Jesus to their specific problems. They wanted to change the character of Christ. They wanted to change the character of the Messiah because of how they were feeling. And rightfully so, they were oppressed. It's understandable. They wanted a savior that would justify, though, their bigoted behavior. Because since the Jews, all they had left was their religion, they had ostracized anyone who was not Jewish. They'd ostracized all Gentiles, all outsiders. Jesus points out the Messiah's first coming, he would come to preach the gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of the sight to the blind, and liberty to those who were oppressed. Jesus did not come to establish a religion. Guys, he came to set the captives free. And the Messiah they wanted was so superficial. The Messiah that these Jews desired at this time was so incredibly superficial where Jesus just met basic needs, such as, okay, we we don't have to pay taxes anymore. Jesus came to do so much more than deal with the petty little things of this world, even though Roman oppression's huge. Jesus came to accomplish so much more than sometimes we give him credit for. And, and, and I, was, I was really struggling with this message because... I've realized that in my own faith and in my own walk with Jesus, in my own walk with God, I have oftentimes conformed God to my image. And I have decided to warp the function of Jesus to make myself more comfortable. I I have often said, you know, Jesus, he's just a great teacher and, you know, a great guy and a good, you know, good leader. And he was... Awesome, and, but you know, I don't need him to save me. And I, and I, 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 I say that sometimes in my, in my heart as, as a truth. When in reality, I'd be calling God a liar. I want to really focus on the function of the Messiah. Because many of us don't understand the complete function of the Messiah. And what he's really meant to accomplish. He's not meant to accomplish uh, us building a church and coming and, and, and kind of feeling good for ourselves for 45 minutes and then leaving. Right? He didn't come to establish a religion where we follow a set of rules and then we go about our way telling everybody that they're wrong. He, just, he, he the Messiah, wanted to accomplish so much more than that. 
I want to focus on the verse where it says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord was a special holiday on the Jewish calendar. It was established in Jeremiah. And this was a very, very, very special day. Okay, the year of Jubilee. And it was every 50 years. If you were ever in debt, if you had to sell yourself into slavery or in servitude because you owed somebody a debt, if you owed anybody any money, once every 50 years, the entire debt that everybody owed, no matter how vast it was, was completely let go. No more debt. It was forgiven completely. Anything you owed your neighbor, anything you owed the bank, just was forgotten. The year of Jubilee was the most exciting most exciting year of the entire uh, century. The year of Jubilee was what everybody hoped to live for because everyone got themselves in debt in one way or the other, so much so that some had to sell themselves into servitude for years and years and years. So could you imagine the celebration that would happen in America if this happened? Like if China's like, don't worry about it, you know? Would you imagine the type of celebration we would have if the banks are just like, don't worry about your credit card debt, we've got you. Imagine that type of happiness and that type of joy and the merriment that would happen, not just with a few select people, but pretty much everyone's affected by debt in some sort of way. Imagine that type of relief. Imagine that weight off their shoulders, this celebration, the year of Jubilee, was meant to foreshadow every single day walking with Christ. You got to know this. This specific celebration was meant to foreshadow the way life would be every single day for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we are vindicated. God has forgiven our debt. And this is cause for complete merriment. This is cause for satisfaction and and love for everybody. This is the function of the Messiah. This is why he came. This is why he came. To bind up the brokenhearted. And to set the captives free. Those who, you know, a lot of us sometimes were like, well, I'm not really captive to anything. I don't even have that much debt. I know I'm captive. And I, I know I'm constantly getting myself in the snares of my own sin. I, and, and other people's sin as well. Where people wrong me and I wrong other people and I'm shackled by that sin. I'm shackled by that sin. I am unable not only to reconcile with God, but reconcile with other people just because of how lame I am. I'm not perfect by any means. And if anyone in here claims to be at all perfect, you'd be lying to yourself. We're all shackled in some way, shape, or form. But sometimes the Savior we desire is not the Savior that we need. You see, the Savior that we need is one that would vindicate us from our sin. One that would free us from the sin, the bondage, and the separation that we have made from God. 
Every single time I sin, I grow further and further away from God because God is perfect. And I don't want to worship a God that's like, ah, yeah, do you know what? You know, you stole, you lied, you cheated, and you committed adultery, but do you know, I'll still let you into heaven. I don't want to worship a God like that. That God's not worthy of my worship. I want to worship a God that's perfect and that doesn't tolerate sin. But he doesn't tolerate my sin. He's perfect. He can't have fellowship with it. Therefore, I need Jesus. I need him. I need him to free me of that. And, and, and sometimes the savior that we desire, the savior that I desire sometimes, is not the savior that I need. The savior that I need is one that would free me from my sin. Now, the savior that I desire sometimes is financial security. Sometimes it's relationships, a degree, abilities, good looks, anything. Sometimes our functional savior, the savior that we want at the moment is not the savior that we need. We look for so many things to satisfy us, not even satisfy us, but protect us and take burden off of us. I believe it was Jim Carrey who said so himself. I wish that everyone can become millionaires so that they could realize that that's kind of, it's not what it's all about. You know, what do we seek to liberate ourselves in times of oppression? Because I'm constantly finding myself oppressed by something. Oppressed by people. Oppressed by my own sin and, and my own demons, so to speak. Those skeletons in my closet. Those secret sins that I keep from people. You, you guys have them too. I'm so oppressed by them. Where do I go to be freed? Where do I go? Have you recreated the purpose of God in your life? And, and, and that's, that's a question that I really struggle with as well. Because a lot of the times I recreate God. Which is funny because God was not created in the first place. A lot of times I seek to redefine God. And say that, yeah, he's just kind of a good guy in the sky that watches over me and will answer my prayers. Or sometimes he's like, yeah, do you know what? He's a big meanie and I need to stay away from that guy. A lot of the times in being in college, this is, this is the classic worldview. God's just a cosmic killjoy. Setting a bunch of rules for myself. And standards for me to live by. We have created our own definition of our savior. When he declares right here what he has come to do. Some of us will say, you know, who are you to tell me how I view God? Who are you to tell me how, how I view God and how I decide God, uh, what, what function he plays in my life? And uh, what I would say to that is the role Jesus wants to play in your life is way more radical than the role you want him to play in your life. You see, a lot of the times we're like, do you know what? I, I want nothing to do with God. But in reality, if you look at the function of the Messiah, he's here for you to liberate you. To take burden off of you. It is only logical to follow Jesus. You know, a lot of the times, you know, it, it, it's hard. 
Because I, I struggle in my head where I, I lose sight of the function of God. And I lose, I lose sight of the function of a savior. And why Jesus came. Which is to liberate me and bring me closer to him. And ultimately bring glory to himself. Because he can bring such wretched people to glory. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16, when Jesus, Jesus was speaking with all of his disciples around the campfire, right? Jesus was a bro. He hung out with a bunch of dudes around a campfire, okay? This is, this is what he did. They had guy talks. They probably laughed and, you know, made fart jokes, Okay? I'm, I'm telling you, Jesus was a bro. He, you know, he, he, he made, you know, he caught his own fish. He would roast those fish and he'd just have bro time with his disciples. And so he's having bro time with his disciples, but then it gets like real because bro time always gets real eventually. Okay. It just gets real. Chris and I have bro time and we're just like, you know, we're goofing off and all of a sudden it gets real. It's like, whoa. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So Jesus is asking his disciples, he's like, who do people say that I am? Like, just don't, don't worry about your answer, okay? Just, just who do people say that I am? What do you hear from people? What do you hear people saying? Listen to these answers because these are generally the answers that the world will give. Okay, my professors give. These are the answers. They said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. John the Baptist, great teacher, not God. John the Baptist was an amazing, amazing influential teacher. He, he led a movement that, that would then uh, come in to the age of the Messiah. John the Baptist, amazing Preacher, teacher, baptizing people, discipling people, loving on people, rebuking people. He was a a big political figure at the time, beheaded for speaking out against the king. And so he's like, who who do men say that I am? Then some say, some say John the Baptist, you're a good teacher. Others say Elijah, a prophet. Some say, some say Elijah, who's a very spiritual man. Some say Jeremiah, a man of faith, who's just... A prophet, one who proclaims God's word. Good teacher, influential leader. All of these true, right? But they miss it. Who do men say that I am? A good teacher, a prophet, a guy who loves Jesus. None of these are insults. None of these are insults. All of these are compliments. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And and this is the question that we all have to face at one point in our lives. Who do you say that Jesus is? We are all faced with this question. This is Jesus saying, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, yes. Exactly. Exactly. We have so many definitions for Jesus, and we like to place him in our own context, but we can't. 
First John chapter 5 alludes to the fact that if we say that Jesus is not God, we are calling God a liar because he has proclaimed in his word, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So to deny that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, is to call God a liar. I do this a lot on very small levels. I like to compartmentalize Jesus. He is the Christ. And this is a hard pill for some people to swallow. And it was especially a hard pill for these Jews in Nazareth to swallow because they had grown up with Jesus. My family will attest that like I as a preacher, they will probably have a hard time, harder time taking what I say to heart because they know me. Like a lot of you don't know me like they know me, okay? I'm the most imperfect person in this room. And these people, these people, they, 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 they're like, well, he was on playdates with my son. He built my coffee table. He was the carpenter. Is this not the carpenter's son? He made an armoire. It was good, but not like Messiah good. It's like, all right, Jesus. You know, I have this problem sometimes where familiarity often creates a mentality where you are proud of the person rather than receiving the content of the message. Or the opposite happens where you're not proud of the person because you know what they did, no matter what they say. Familiarity often causes us to warp the message into our opinion of that person. And so these people, they're like, well, you know, I, I changed this guy's diapers. This is a small town. We all know each other. This is Jesus. I saw him trip and fall, and he was bleeding. He, the Messiah doesn't bleed. The Messiah is supposed to come in on a white horse with the sword in hand and slash in all the Romans' heads. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. This is a carpenter. This is not what I expected from a savior. Jesus had become familiar to them. And, and when you think that you know all you need to know about Jesus, that's when you cease worshiping him. You know that? When you think that you've completely come to reali- a realization of who God is, that's when you stop worshiping him. I have, I have a friend, I have a buddy who's he's, he's taken a few comparative religion classes at Moore Park College, and he thinks that he knows Christ. He thinks that he knows Christ because he has read a couple books on the matter. And he's listened to a couple of lectures. And, and I just said to him, in a loving way, you think you know Christ? You think you know him? You know, because he's talking about, yeah, he was an influential leader. He was a good guy. But do you know what? He's caused so much division all throughout history. Look at the Crusades, the Salem witch trials. Look at all that. Look at what Christ has done. Man's not perfect by any means. And we mishandle the Bible a lot. But I still said to him, you think you know Christ. (laughs) You think you have him figured out? You have no idea how deep, how wide, and how vast his love is for you. 
I want you to name one person that would take on the entire sins of the universe to save the murderers, the rapists, the bigots, the tax collectors, the raging alcoholics. And one person that would lay his life down for sinners. Name one, name one God in all religions who would leave the throne room of heaven to come down into the scums of the earth and take the entire sins of the universe upon him, have his divine father say, you're disgusting, I want nothing to do with you, crucify him, take all the sins of us, take them away, die, and rise again in three days. I want you to name one God that anybody has ever claimed to be real that will do that for you. Name one God that will leave heaven for you and take on the sickness of humanity so that you don't have to deal with it. You think you know Christ. But I don't even completely know Christ. Every single day, I'm learning more about the Savior that has changed my life. I will never come to a complete understanding of how deep his love is for me. And how he could hang there on that cross. Do you know what, guys? Yeah, yeah, it was brutal. Having nails driven through his hands. Having his back whipped towards the point you can see his ribs. Having his beard ripped out of his face being flogged to a point where his own mother didn't even recognize him, having a crown of thorns splashed into his skull, having his lungs caved in and his shoulders dislocated and hanging there for nine hours on a cross. That was brutal. Yeah, but that was the least of the pain of the crucifixion. The pain of the crucifixion was this, that there was a unity between Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit ever since the beginning of, the, beginning of time. For all of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had always lived in perfect unity. Then Son came down, and the Father said, I'm going to put all those sins on you. All the punishment is on you. And that unity that Jesus and God had experienced for all of eternity, severed. I want you to picture, I want you to imagine the person that's closest to you in this world, whether it be a spouse or a child or a friend. And I want you to imagine them being crucified for somebody else's sins when they were completely innocent. That's heavy. That's heavy, and I, I, I don't want to depress you all because it's a reason why it's called good news. It's a reason why it's called good news. He rose again. Sin had no power over him because he lived a perfect life. And they reject him because they're familiar, but they don't know how deep his love is for us. They also reject him because they want to believe that there's something special about themselves. And, and we learn this. He says, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to no, none of them Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. For many of us, that's just a bunch of names and a bunch of places. And it was for me when I first read it. 
But there are three different people in Jewish society that were completely ostracized, like you didn't touch them, you didn't speak with them. It's sad, but it's true. Gentiles, non-Jews, you didn't speak with them. You didn't, you didn't do business with them. You didn't cooperate with them. Gentiles were dirty, okay? Ungodly pagans. You didn't discuss anything with Gentiles and surely would not let a Gentile into your home. For those of you who are not from Jewish descent, you're a Gentile, okay? Another, sadly, women were not treated well. They were second-class citizens in this time. In this culture, women, second-class citizens, okay? You would, a man would definitely never go into a woman's house, ever, okay? If he, if he went into a woman's house, she would leave and her husband would stay, Okay? Many rabbis, many people who, who claim to be holy men, they, they, would put, they would put hoods over their heads any time they walked into a place where there was a lot of women. And they call them the bloody prophets or the bloody rabbis because they were always running into stuff and running into poles. Another were lepers. Rabbis would often, young rabbis, young teenage rabbis, they would often brag, and we see this in history books, where they would brag about how well, and they can hit the target, which was a leper, with stones. Lepers were completely ostracized. And, and Zarephath was a Gentile woman who worshipped Baal. She was a starving, and she had an orphan son. Now, everyone was starving at this time. Zarephath, she was a Gentile, she was starving, and she had an orphan son. And Elisha didn't help any of the Jews, but he went to her. And he preached the gospel to her. And God provided food for her. And when his son was sick, he cured her. Naaman the Syrian, he was a general in the Syrian army. Very prestigious man. He, he came up with leprosy, completely forgotten by all of his people. God saved him. God went in and took care of him. Jesus is saying, he's saying, I've come for the Gentiles too. He, I've come for the Gentiles too. I've come to save the Gentiles as well. And do you know what? You need God just as much as the Gentiles do. And just as much as the lepers do. And just as much as the women do. And that's why these people are furious. Because they're Jews. Okay, they're Jews, religious people who would do all that they could morally to keep the law. And Jesus was telling them, you need a Messiah just as much as a dirty, rotten, stinking Gentile woman or a leper Syrian. We often reject Christ because we desperately desire to be the author of our own salvation. These people wanted to be the author of their own salvation. If we could just be a good person, then God will be pleased with us. If we can just walk a moral life, God will be pleased with us. If we can just do our best not to lie, cheat, or steal, drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with girls that do. Okay, if we could just try our best, maybe God will be pleased with us. And I'm not going to just go into this whole thing where you guys are sinners and, you know. But think about this. And this is often what leads me back to Jesus. Why would you strive and struggle to be morally upright 
when it doesn't even lead to God. When God has already said, your good works, they mean nothing to me. I I desire a pure and contrite heart that will repent. Why would you strive and struggle to work out your salvation when Jesus stands in front of you and says, here it is, take it. I'm giving it to you as a free gift. You want salvation, you're trying to work for it, but I have it right here and I want to give it to you because I love you. And many of us are like, no, I'm the author of my own fate. When it's right there. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, and God prepared us beforehand that we should walk in them. What what Paul is saying here, he's saying we were all dead in sin, and we all need Jesus. And and Jesus has removed our ability to say, I have earned my way to heaven. Because there are those that can't. And those people are everyone. Sin is not just doing bad things. It's missing perfection, which all of us have done. I have done way more times than all of you. Now, To work out your salvation when Jesus offers it right here as a free gift to me doesn't make sense. (laughs) Me, you know, wagging my fist at God saying, I'm going to do it. And God's like, good luck. We try to build bridges and I'm going to close with this. We try to build bridges to heaven. Okay. We, we, we try to build bridges to heaven by good works and good morals and an upright life or, or by our own moral standards, our own moral code that we have created ourselves, making ourselves God, which is idolatry and blasphemy. But, but we have tried to build bridges to heaven. And the thing about building bridges, especially to a place like heaven, is that it's tiring and impossible. We're building and building, not lying, not cheating, not stealing. But then we accidentally lie, and then another part of the bridge is broken. And so we have to rebuild it again and rebuild it again, and then we mess up big time. Where we're caught in a huge sin, and then all of a sudden, the bridge is crumbling again. We're still trying to work ourselves to God, work ourselves to God, work ourselves to God, and we are getting tired. I am getting tired, ladies and gentlemen, of building bridges to God. And in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my my burden is light. Jesus is saying, 
I've come to set you free from building bridges. Have faith in me. I'll do it for you. I will die for you and build that bridge for you. I'll take on your sins. And all you have to do is have faith in me. My yoke is easy. The yoke is what you would put on an ox to plow. Jesus is saying, it's, don't worry. You're building bridges to God and you are getting weary. So tired trying to perform yourself into heaven. When Jesus is saying, I have come to set you free. Come to set you free. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and I'm going to end with a prayer. And, and I want to worship in a way that we're liberated. Why would you come to God with so much baggage and not set it upon his feet? God says, cast your cares upon me. I will never let the righteous fall. You're building bridges. You're constantly trying to get to me, but I've come to you. You see, that's the difference between religion and and Christianity. Religion is us trying to build bridges to God and trying to do things to get favor with God. But Christianity is Christ saying, you can't do it. I'm coming down to you. I'm coming down to you on your level. I'm going to live your life. I'm going to live it perfectly. And I'm going to die for you so you don't have to be burdened anymore. I want to worship a God that liberates me from my sin. Don't you? Let's worship in liberty tonight. And all you have to do is say, God, take it. Jesus, take it. And that's how we worship. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have liberated us. God, we thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden light. Father, I pray, God, that we would worship you in a way where we are not working to get to you, Father, but we are receiving the free gift that you give us. And God, I I pray that none of us would reject you. God, that we wouldn't reject you and try to be the author of our own salvation, Lord. We would let go tonight. God, just that we would let go of our burdens and God, we would let go of our sin, Lord, all that hidden stuff, Lord, and all the known stuff, Lord, all, all, all the stuff that we have on our shoulders right now, Lord, that we are struggling with in life, whether it be our own sins and our own trespasses or the people that have been oppressing us, Lord. You have come to bring, God, you come to bring salvation to Jew and Gentile, slave and free. So, Father, liberate us tonight, God. And may we worship you in the liberty that you have given us freely. We love you and we praise you tonight as one body singing to the God that has liberated and vindicated us. We love you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Let's worship.